Welcome to the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. If you find money to be the number one, two, or even third largest source of stress in your relationship, then you're in the right place. Going beyond how to budget, invest, and do your taxes, we're going to explore financial intimacy. Discover how to talk with your partner about your shared financial life. Let's take the awkward and painful out of money conversations. Join me and hit follow to listen to weekly inspiring, healing, and motivating interviews with financial therapists, couples therapists, and financial planners, and so many more. Let's go on the journey of financial intimacy together. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthy Love and Money Podcast. Today, I have the most wonderful B Cote, and B is a powerhouse. If you track her work on Facebook, she is talking about domestic violence at a volume, I think, unlike any other. She has a deep passion for helping families and individuals struggling around the topic of domestic violence. And I'm going to let her tell us a little bit more, but she has her own company, Impact Family Violence Services. And then she's a leader of Step Up. And now I'm missing the last part. Family Safety. Step Up for Family Safety. And so let us in on what are these two organizations and how did you get into this field of working with domestic violence? Well, my background was working with families. I did child protective services. And then in the late 90s, um, they started realizing that domestic violence could be a bigger problem than they thought in terms of uh, family dysfunction and child abuse. And so I started going to all these trainings on uh, domestic violence and eventually went to run a program for abusers. And that's what I've been doing ever since for about 23 years now. I've been working exclusively with the abusers um, and in uh, most cases with the abusive men. Uh, but in doing so, I help a lot of their victims and a lot of people who call me um, asking for assistance. Uh, once people realize that there is help for abusers or they even that something is abuse that they didn't know was abuse before, uh, then they may call me and I can, uh, you know, I've directed them to the right place. And sometimes the right place is my program. And so I impact is currently a, an LLC. So it's a business, Mm -hmm. but uh, Mm -hmm. we have so few referrals and, and uh, the the program is uh, certified by the state, which it has to be in order to accept referrals from the courts. Um, and as a certified program, there are certain rules I have to follow, as you might expect. Sure. So we have a fantastic curriculum. The program is a minimum of 26 weekly hour and a half sessions. We have a workbook uh, curriculum that we use, and they have to actually complete the program before being completed from the program. And because it is such an involved program, uh, we don't accept, we don't give credit for partial completion. What we're trying to do is change a lifetime's worth of um, belief systems Mm. and thinking that have led to the abuse. And when I explain how hard it is, I talk about the weight loss journey that I've just, I've given up. But but when I was on the weight loss journey, I could go to say Weight Watchers, WW as they call it now. Yeah. Um, I could go to Weight Watchers and I could lose 50 pounds, right? Sure. And I attended every meeting. I, you know, put all my points in, put all my exercise in, did everything I was supposed to do. And then after about six months, you know, I would forget to put my points in one day. And so I'd say, well, I'm going to do it tomorrow. And then tomorrow I would catch up. Then the next week I would forget and not catch up. And pretty soon I stopped entering all my information into the app. And as soon as I stopped doing that, some of the old behaviors started coming back. So while abuse is nowhere near an addictive behavior or a disease or a disorder or anything like that, it just goes to show that it takes a lot of work to change a lifetime's worth of stuff in your head. 
Yeah, right? absolutely. Yeah, and so th- that's why the program is as long as it is. And then we have a program sponsored by the nonprofit Step Up to Family Safety called Legacy. And Legacy is when the guys who finish my impact program want to continue to do their work. Uh, want to um, help other guys understand. And so they have their own group. It's led by them, and they meet once a month instead of once a week. And then we have special activities for them as well, and they come back to the regular impact groups, whether virtual or in person, and uh, continue to do their own work in there and uh, help the guys who are still in impact understand some of the concepts that uh, they've come to understand. So um, for, for guys who really want to change, they know that it is a lifetime journey. That's so powerful. And I can imagine someone starting the journey. That's not the thing that they really want to hear, is it? No. They want a quick fix. Mostly what they want is to appease the victim. <laughs> right. So, so, or appease the courts. Uh-huh. So I take self-referred guys, quite a few actually, um, especially in Mecklenburg County. I'm in five North Carolina counties. And in my Mecklenburg County program, it's almost all guys who've been referred by therapists. Uh, especially out of couples counseling or sometimes individual counseling as well. And then in some of my other counties, they're almost all um, criminal court referred. We do take them um, referred by the civil courts, which is going to be your restraining orders, and by DSS um, when the uh, the domestic violence is a cause of the child abuse or neglect or is a barrier to them getting their kids back. So I'm curious, there's probably all kinds of misconceptions about domestic violence and male batterers. What are some of those top two or three that you run up against all the time that you're dispelling? Well, um, number one, it is not a gender equal issue. (laughs) Um, Right. (laughs) Number one. Yeah. Uh, when, but, but there's some disparity out there and, and I'll give you an example our major hospital in Charlotte here is um, uh, Atrium, Maine, what used to be called CMC Maine, and they have a domestic violence program, and they keep really good statistics. Mm. And year yeah. after year, their statistics show us that um, 95% of the people who come to the hospital with serious injuries or are killed uh, come to the hospital before they die um, due to domestic violence are women. It could be not as high as 97 and 98%. And then the other thing is that the ones who, the the men who do show up because of uh, serious uh, injuries are often injured by male partners. So you still have, so when you hear those statistics, we hear that all the time. Seven out of 10 men or, or one in seven men or one in 10 men are abused too. Well, yeah, but who are they being abused by uh, and how are they being abused? Okay. And yet pre pandemic, I was keeping track of, we have uh, almost all my counties except for Gaston County have a domestic violence dedicated criminal courtroom. And Charlotte has two dedicated courtrooms, one civil and one criminal that run full time. The other counties, it's one day a week. But um, I started keeping track of the gender numbers in, uh, in our criminal domestic violence courtroom pre-pandemic. So while 95% of the serious injuries and deaths were to women, 22% of the people being arrested and charged as domestic violence abusers were women. Huh. How do you explain that? We're arresting victims. Uh, mis, uh, misappropriately arresting victims. Or... Right. right. So when does a, a woman end up looking like an abuser that she ends up arrested? What okay, is that? well, that's a really good question. So domestic violence is about... People abuse because they feel entitled Okay, do so, no matter what that entitlement is. Something in their head is telling them at that time that this is an appropriate 
or justified response to whatever pain they're in, whatever they're feeling. And so that's where it becomes a decision-making process. Most people believe that they lost it. Okay. Okay. And most guys come to me believing themselves to be the victims. Sure. How does that work? They're in pain. Okay. Yeah. They're in pain because they've gone to jail, maybe for the first time ever, Uh because their wife has left them or is leaving. Yeah. Um, They're in pain because the neighbors found out. Yeah. Or they're being shunned. So they're in pain. And now if they're in pain, then they must be the victims. Ah, okay. Right, right. They're hurting. So therefore somebody hurt them. Right. Yeah. Right. So there's little accountability at the beginning. Almost all of these guys are going to be portraying themselves as victims. The ones who are honest about what they've done are really only going to give me the top of the iceberg. I'm only going to get a part of the truth. You, as a counselor, are only going to get a part of the truth. Right. And so back to what causes domestic violence. So it's this entitlement. Most often the entitlement is based on power. If you think about power is a belief system. Okay. Control is a behavior. Okay. Yeah. Got it? Yeah. Yeah. So that, and, and who has the power as a baseline in almost every relationship in, in the country. The man or the woman. Right, the man. In a heterosexual yeah, the man, right. right. Uh-huh. Yeah, still head of household. Um, uh-huh. You know, that's just, you, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that it's bad in every relationship or that it's wrong or anything like that. It just is. It's still like the default setting. Uh-huh. And so unless somebody purposefully shares that power with their partner. Right. They still have the power to share it, right? Uh-huh. Okay, so the guys I work with automatically have the power in these relationships. And domestic violence only happens when there is a power differential. It relies on that power differential to happen. Most men don't abuse. Most men recognize that there's a power differential and and strive to to equalize it in their relationship. Right, right. right. But there are a lot of people, a lot of guys who don't. And don't ask me how many men are abusive because that's one study that's never been done. (laughs) Because who, who would fund that? That could be a crippling uh, study, couldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Do you find, I mean, yeah, I don't know how to want to ask this question. Men are on this journey of recognizing their power in the relationships, how they manage that well, that many of the men that you're working with have never really given full concept to what power means in the relationship and how they've been kind of bestowed it just by virtue of being a male? Right. Yeah. Nobody's ever thought about that. And many of them deny it. So, you know, I have to soft pedal with some of these guys because many of these men are just, uh, they're homophobic. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're manly men and they want, they, they love women, right? Yeah. They love women. And what they were always told as children was you never put your hands on a woman. Right. Nobody ever explained what that meant. That's interesting. Or how to handle conflict. Which is really that next step, right? Is like, okay, well, if I can't put my hands on a woman, what do I do when I'm upset or disappointed with her? Right. Voila. And and speaking to that was something really interesting. I have had two guys who headbutted their partners because they knew they couldn't hit her. Uh, I had a guy hit her with a belt because he knew that hitting her with his hand would be wrong because you don't put your hands on a woman. 
But then how do you resolve issues? Right. Nobody teaches people, you know, where do you learn about relationships? You learn from watching your caregivers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah. From watching your best friend's parents. Yeah. You learn from what's around you. And if you never see people resolve conflict, number one, have conflicts and resolve them peacefully. Yeah. Then how do you know how to do that? How do you know what to do with your pain? Um, a lot of people want to say that uh, abusers, I've got a couple pet peeves here, if you don't mind. Yeah, no, this is this is the space to... But abusers must have been abused as kids. Okay. Well, are you familiar with the ACEs? I am. Yeah. Okay. So the ACEs is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Scale, right? It measures trauma yeah. in adults uh, when they were kids. And there are 10 questions on the basic uh, ACEs. So 10 major kinds of ways that kids can suffer trauma yeah. um, as children. That then, And the more ways there are, the, the bigger impact is going to be on their physical and mental health as adults, right? Yep. Uh, so my guys don't have any higher ACEs scores than anybody else. Oh. Oh, this is yeah. So, like, as a group, you might expect, like, let's say the average population score is two. I don't, I don't remember what it is, but it's. I don't remember either. But, All I remember is that the people who score the highest are victims, not the abusers. But that, so that's really the big takeaway is, on a whole, abusers don't have a different trauma profile than right. any other type right. of. Okay. All right. right. And let me, let me disabuse another notion that's been really popular lately. And this one has not made me friends. Um, well, two of them. Two things have not made me friends. One is Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp is an abuser. Yeah. All right. Amber Heard is a victim. No matter what else you think. Mm. You know, no matter what you think your proof is out there. And, and I've done um, guest appearances on podcasts uh, on that topic. But the other big current popular thing is narcissistic abuse. So, Edward, where do you see narcissistic abuse in your, D, uh, in your DSM-5? Uh, I can't say that I have seen it in there. It's not in there. Right. Yeah, right? right. It's not in there. And then when you're looking at the criteria for uh, diagnosing narcissistic personality disorder, tell me where you see abuse. Especially not the physical type. Nope. I don't think it's in the, the selection criteria. Not in there. Right. 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 Not in there. But yet, we've got therapists who are buying into this whole trend of narcissistic and what's the other kind of uh, narcissistic and malignant oh sure uh-huh abuse right um and so i want to straighten that out my guys are jerks okay they are they are at the very least assholes okay to the women in their lives right yeah but they're no more diagnosable with a narcissistic personality disorder than people sitting on a corporate boardroom <laughs> okay. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because what does narcissism really mean? It means getting to the top without caring if you heard about other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Sure. Uh, it means not giving a damn what other people, um, what other people's experiences are or whose feelings you hurt. Right. It does yeah. not necessarily mean that you're going to be abusive to your partner. You, It's probably really difficult to be in a relationship with somebody with a narcissistic personality disorder. But here's the other thing. You can't, you can't just go around diagnosing people with a narcissistic personality disorder because they're jerks. And so you have victims who come to counseling and go, I need counseling because I'm a victim of narcissistic abuse. Okay. And therapists fall for that. And here's, there are many problems with that. Number one, 
Are you ready for this? Uh, this is a tough one for therapists. All right. Most therapists have no training in domestic violence. Oh, no. Say You can say that again, and I, I think it's important to call that out um, for for the listeners, that, that this is a general population podcast. And right. so right. tell us a little bit about... Yeah, domestic violence is not caused by any mental illness or disorder. So therefore, it is not seen as something that therapists need to study in grad school. Hmm. Okay, so some people have an interest in it and sought out classes or training in it. Sure, right? sure. But it's not a part of core curricula unless you're like going to a university that specializes in that, right? But it's not, you're not going to study that along with depression and ADHD because it's not in our DSM. So that also means that therapy doesn't work on abusers. That's a big pill to swallow, isn't it? It is. It's a very big pill to swallow because we as therapists want to think that we can address this just like we do any other issue that affects our clients, right? But the but the problem, if you've got, let's say a victim comes to counseling because she's in a relationship with somebody uh, who is emotionally abusing her, Number one, she may be being physically abused as well, but can't tell you, right? Right. And how are you addressing the safety issues? If you're a therapist who has not been trained as a domestic violence advocate to know that safety first, if you go right into dealing with him, getting her to understand how to live with him, or working on trauma while she's still in an abusive relationship, it's a big problem. You may be causing more harm than good. You know, I yeah, I mean, and that's there's probably a handful of things that keep me up at night, if not literally, figuratively, and that is definitely one of those things. Is am I missing right. the safety? Because there's, there's yeah. some real subtleties to the way that this stuff shows up, isn't there? Yeah, and you may never know. I mean, I've worked with people for years and had them come back 10 years later and say, by the way, I think it's okay to tell you now what I was going through at the time. There's, there's even for an expert that's expert in domestic violence, it's still hard for for them to come out with it. And there's just, I'm not a loss for words even about just. Well, you should never, ever do couples counseling. If there's any inkling that there's any domestic abuse and keep in mind, most domestic violence is not criminal. So elaborate on that. That's, I think something so important to understand. Well, hold on. I've got my little book here. Hold on. Here is our our um, workbook. The guys buy this workbook. It's three hundred pages. It's pretty hefty. This is the curriculum. Okay. And it is mostly based on this power and control wheel. And this wheel may be a little bit different from the ones you've seen. Can you see it here, or is it backwards for you? No, it's it's good enough. It's a you'll need to um the computer camera is blurring it, so you may have to describe a little bit of what's here for people. Okay, so as you see, you've got power and control in the middle. Right. But what I would say is I would put superimpose on their entitlement because most entitlement is power and control, but there's some other stuff that may be going on that's really not about power and control, but still entitlement. So what we've got here, if you think of it as a wheel, where do you see physical and sexual Violence. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm not able to see it because it's getting a little blurred, but can you describe okay. this wheel? Because there will be some people that are just listening. Okay. So if you can tell just us what's like around the wheel there, that would be All great. Right. So this looks like a wheel or a pie. Yeah. And um, there are spokes in the middle. There are eight spokes, yeah. eight sections. 
And those are called tactics. Okay. And the headings of those tactics are as follows. Using intimidation, using emotional abuse, using isolation, using obfuscation. They have to be able to pronounce that by the time they finish. <laughs> yeah, that's a tricky one. <laughs> using others, using male privilege, using economic abuse, using coercion, coercion and threats. And then on the outside, in a black ring, it says physical violence and sexual violence. Mm. The threat of those are often enough to keep a victim in compliance. Yeah. I'll give you an example of my grandmother. My grandmother died of COVID last year at 102. But she, after uh, she's from France, and after she divorced my mother's father, she married an airman, a U.S. Uh, Air Force airman, who, by the way, did not want to ever get married or have children. And she got knocked up at like 44, 45 years old, uh -huh. 46. And um, anyway, so he was not happy with her. He only physically assaulted her one time. Mm -hmm. That was enough, along with the threat of losing any income as an immigrant woman. Mm -hmm. That was enough to keep her in compliance for 50 years. So just that one, and it wasn't, he, did, he threw something, like a door. He threw a door and he didn't hit her, but threw it at her, but he didn't hit her. So she was not injured. So for 50 years, she never saw herself as a domestic violence victim because that one act was enough to keep her in compliance. So most domestic violence, the, the topics that you heard, um, most are not criminal. And so therefore, most domestic violence victims don't know what, what's going on. And they may take the responsibility themselves mm -hmm. because he may say, if you didn't suck at being a wife, if you weren't such a shitty girlfriend, mm -hmm. you know, why don't you do this? If you want to make me happy, you say you want to make me happy, but you go out with your girlfriends and you know how unhappy that makes me. Right. So you see the control there, but most people don't define control as abuse. Well, you can't call the police department and say, hey, um, he just told me these things. You need to arrest him and take him down to the jail. Right. That emotional right. abuse piece right. is in control. Right. You don't see billboards of women suffering from economic abuse. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to the Healthy Love and Money podcast. I'm honored that you spend time with me listening to these incredible interviews. I love working with individuals and couples around their financial life, integrating mental health and relational well-being. I'd love to personally invite you into my financial planning practice where I do therapy-informed financial planning, bringing together mental health, relationship health, and financial well-being. If you're thinking that's the type of help you'd like, please see the show notes below to schedule your free 30-minute discovery call. And I'll look forward to seeing you and hearing more about your unique story and how I can best support you. Now, back to the show. You don't see billboards of women suffering from economic abuse. No, and I, I really want to dive into that. You know, with my intersection of healthy love and money, right? It's the intimate relationship and money. And, on, you yes. know, it comes out gnarly on the money side. So, what are some of those things right. that you see? You said earlier in the interview, and I thought it was so powerful, is a lot of people don't even recognize the abuse that's happening because it, so many abusive patterns are so normalized in our culture and society that we don't even recognize it as. Abusive. So we we may only recognize repeated beatings. I tell my guys, you know what? The next time you go out on a first date, punch her in the face on that first date. And of course, they're going, "What? Why would you say that, Miss B?" And I'm like, "Because that way they'll know from the beginning what they're dealing with, mm. and they can make a decision from the start." Mm. But if you wait until they all have kids in a house together. She might think that this is never going to happen again, that it's a total anomaly. Wow. 
so I want to go down that rabbit hole, but I want to come back to the money side. What are those, some of those abusive money patterns that you hear and see in your work with the men? So there's also another wheel, and I don't have a picture of it right now, but if people can Google it, it's called the post-separation abuse wheel. Uh-huh. That one is really, really heavy on financial abuse. So before a separation, when a couple's still together, uh, the way financial abuse, economic abuse may look is that he looks at all her receipts. Uh-huh. He gives her a certain budget. And this happened to my aunt as well. He gives her a budget. And so she, if she wants anything else, even for the kids, um, she has to ask for permission. And what we see a lot are, are wealthy men with um, wives who stay at home with the kids. Oh, yeah. It's a whole lot easier to control if you also control all the money coming in. And uh, so, right. And and so you put people on a budget and you put your wife on a budget like you do kids. Yeah. Right. If you're controlling, if you're the one earning the money brought into the home, I have seen economic abuse played out. I, I had a uh, a master's degree teacher one time who uh, handed over every check to him. It automatically went into his account. Mm. And she, when she finally left him, she had no idea how to write a check. So, uh, yeah, how do we, how do we work through that dynamic? How do we help and help me with this? Cause the way I'm having it framed is, you know, let it be is how do we help women be empowered financially in their intimate relationship? And this is, I guess I'm coming from that lens, giving the guy the benefit of the doubt that he'll play with that. But right. uh, you in the domestic violence world, he's not going to play with that. Right. Like you can try to become financially empowered as a female in the relationship, right. but what's he going to do if you try to become financially empowered in the relationship? Well, in, in traditional families where there isn't financial abuse, she may be totally in charge of all the finances right. of all the spend. And, you know, and then in, in, in relationships where that mostly occurs, but where he feels disempowered, that's when she goes out of town on vacation and he'll buy a motorcycle while she's gone. Right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. Or a boat or a truck. Right. Uh-huh. And uh, something that she wouldn't let him. But what you do is you negotiate in a relationship who has the best skills. Right. With money. Who's the most responsible? Um, who is gracious? Mm, who's gracious? With that responsibility. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so you may have somebody in a relationship who sucks at keeping a checkbook. So the other person agrees to, like, keep, you know, keeping the balance. Right, right. The other person may be better at something else. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, looking at investments, whatever, whatever. Right. But in a equal relationship, you negotiate those matters. You don't just bring the hammer down. I'm the one bringing in the money. So what I say goes, oh, by the way, I see this a lot too. So we were talking about post-separation. Yeah. If I still... The house is still in his name mm-hmm. after they're separated. He will totally use that. He'll uh, go into the house and say, it's still in my name. I've been in court one time when our chief judge at the time was hearing a, a restraining order case. And um, the victim had tried to get back together with the husband. So she let him come back. They tried to work things out for a month. He was just as abusive. She put him out again and she changed the locks. And so one day she's at a friend's house and the friend, another, her neighbor calls and says, your husband just broke down your back door. Mm. And he kept his truck in the driveway all night so that she couldn't come home and secure her house. No idea where he was. She called the police. They went out there, couldn't find him. His truck was in the driveway. 
Um, so the next day she filed for a restraining order, found out that he had been sitting across the street watching all this happen and drinking beers with his, uh, his friend who lived mm. across the street. And the judge did not give her the restraining order. You know why? Because he said he still owned the home. Now, not only did the judge not ask to see any paperwork, but what does that matter mm. with regard to her safety? This was still her residence. Why not give her the restraining order? I mean, he had threatened her by breaking down the door right. and leaving her unable to secure her house. So this brings up a really important question, and I may be misguided on this. So how clarify for me and anybody else that has this thought, the separation process during in a domestic violence relationship is one of the most dangerous times in the whole relationship arc. Is that? Much more dangerous than what we see reported. Um, the, uh, the statistics come from police reports. Yeah, right. Right. Uh, and from those, we gather that 75 to 76% of all domestic violence murders happen because she left, was leaving, or wouldn't come back. But that's only when she has officially left. She's established another, uh, another residence, um, it's, or she's filed for a restraining order that says, you know, that they're, they're separated. But, what we're missing are the families who say she was trying so hard to leave him mm. or she had just left him or he made her come back. None of that is going to be an official separation mm. and therefore it's not going to get reported. If you take all those into consideration, my guess is 95%. Of domestic violence murders happen because a victim left, was leaving, or wouldn't return. Well, you have worked with the abusers who have likely committed these crimes. Is that fair to say you've worked with men that have completed murders? Uh, I've only I only have one, uh. thankfully, and it actually happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh. Um, and he was in my program four years um, four years ago. Okay. Uh, four years before, so six years ago, and uh, he was a young man, and uh, we knew he really didn't get it. He was also still drinking, mm -hmm. and by the way, alcohol, drugs do not cause domestic violence either, the, but, but, but drunkenness can make it so much more dangerous, and uh, so anyway, so um, he was... He had been he had been sent to us by one county, but lived in another. So that's where we saw him. Then later on, he two years after he finished my program, he was charged in Mecklenburg County, was uh, put on probation. He was convicted, put on probation, ordered back to a program like mine. Yeah, did not comply, and the judge released him. Mm. Another two years pass, and he kills a girlfriend. I mean, what you're the work you're doing is high stakes. It's it is high stakes, and it, it really matters both for the the women that are adversely impacted, but the men's course of life is impacted too. Absolutely, and most men don't know. The, we need to go back to that. Most men don't know they're being abusive. So if they don't know they're being abusive, mm. um, what? When they want help, when they know something's wrong, they're going to Google, like I just heard this from my guys this week or last week. They're Googling, how do I stop being a bad husband? They're not Googling how to stop being an abuser. Right. They're Googling how to right. stop being a bad husband. How to stop being a bad husband. <laughs> how, to be, how to stop being mean to my wife. How to, how to stop yelling at my girlfriend. And they may say, how do I stop verbally abusing my girlfriend? Because they don't see that really as abuse. But she may see that. Yeah. So, yeah. And so there is help for these guys out there. And I'm hoping uh, to soon, soon develop a program for guys who haven't even been abusive yet, but are bordering on it. They're getting close. Edges, but we want men to know that there is help for men too. Mm. My hashtag, 
says only abusers can stop abuse. Only abusers can stop abuse. So hashtag search that. And there's almost some tears coming up because you're saying this is that compassion you have for men that are on that spectrum or have already crossed that line into domestic violence is there's so much compassion. At least that's what I'm reading off of you is you're not condoning or supporting what they've done, but you know that these guys are in a lot of distress. They they need a lot of support. And I imagine there's just heaps of shame for a lot of them too, at some level. It is. We talk a lot about shame. We talk, we bring in, uh, you know, Brene Brown videos yeah. um, and talk, about shame a lot um, because it is very shaming. And I'm not saying that these guys aren't hurting. That's another thing. Most of my guys are seen as sociopaths, right? Right. The rest of the population shuns them and says, what kind of man would abuse his wife? He must be a sociopath. He must be a monster. Right. But again, no more of my guys are sociopaths than anybody else anywhere else. Mm. And so the ones that are, are the really, really scary ones. The ones who I had one, one time who told his wife exactly which kitchen floor tiles she was allowed to walk on. Mm. Those are the sociopaths. And those are also the ones that the victims can't leave because they would die. Yeah, that opens up. Most of my guys are, I call them just goobers. Sometimes they're just like, oh, I didn't know, you know. And and so we can work with that. If we can reach a place of compassion uh, for their families, then we can work with that. So would you say, I mean, it sounds like what you're saying is, look, a lion's share of the male domestic violence perpetrators are goobers in, in a generic everyday term, right? Like, right. I mean, it's for someone on the outside, they might say, well, how would you not know that's being abusive? But they, if, in the convoluted context of their mind, it's not abuse. Okay. So let's not get too bent over that, but let's help them start seeing how, what they're doing is abusive. And then more importantly, that they have some other options to work through when they feel the frustration, the disappointment. Right the hurt, the misunderstandings by their spouses. And by the way, I want to say if they have children or their partners have children and they are abusing the children's mother, they are abusing the children. So elaborate on the, that from a psychology perspective to help people really understand that. Because I know I see and hear that all the time. It's like, well, it didn't happen to me. It didn't happen. The kids were, the kids were always over at grandma's or in bed asleep. Right. right? But it doesn't matter because kids who grow up having witnessed abuse will tell you they heard and saw everything. Um, So here's how it works. Even if the abuser has never physically assaulted the children, he has has modeled for them how dads act, how husbands act, how boyfriends act to women. Yeah. And what, how women are seen. Mm -hmm. He has modeled um, that women are weak and that moms cannot protect you. He has interfered oftentimes with that mother child bond that you will agree is vital to healthy development, right? Absolutely. I even have guys that I know for sure drove their wives away at gunpoint, threatening to kill the children if they ever return, and then raise the children as these heroic single fathers who raised the children after mom abandoned them. And that that's the message the kids grow up with is that my mother abandoned me. I was not worth my mother overcoming her drug problem, which may or may not have happened. But I, I had one guy one time... Um, who said that he was raised by a single father and uh, and his paternal grandmother. And uh, I asked him, I said, well, you know, what happened to your mother? And he said, well, I don't know. I, I didn't see her anymore after it was like two or three. And I said, well, tell me about the last time you saw her. Um, and he said he was on the front porch and watched mom walk away with a man who was holding a shovel. Wow. 
and she was never seen or heard from again. Mm. And so the whole family said that uh, she had abandoned them. So, you know, and these fathers don't physically abuse their children, although abuse does happen in like 60 to 85 percent. I was going to say, it's hard to imagine that if they're abusing their female partner, they're not also abusing the kids in a decent percentage. And then I'm going back in the interview a little bit because you said something about wealthy men. And I think that this is probably a cultural misnomer, but like who's within the who's doing the domestic violence? Is it, is it really, I mean, it's, it crosses all demographical boundaries, right? Is my understanding. Right. And with, with the wealthier men, they may purposefully not be doing anything that will get them into trouble legally. They know how to flirt the line very closely. They know how to, in fact, the guy with the floor tiles there, yeah. he told me this will be the last time I ever get caught. I know exactly how far I can go now. Mm. How frightening is that? It is terrifying. And, Right. And so you've got guys who um, are using, and if they have money, they're more than likely using economic abuse right. um, to control her. Um, and then after a breakup, if say she is a stay-at-home mom, right? If she leaves him, he's already told her he's going to destroy her, that he's going to get the kids because the courts are going to understand he can take better care of the kids because she has no money. He, he uses that leverage point. And uh, yeah, and the and the lawyers help him. Of course they do. Uh, well, that's that's part of their uh, air quote right. job. Yeah, exactly. I'm doing some uh, more legal training now um, for family uh, family law attorneys on that. Matter. You're helping family law attorneys understand some of the psychological processes. Understand that they are not helping their clients, uh-huh. who is the the abuser in a relationship by making the whole situation more aggressive and hurting the victim. But I've even had the victim's attorney believing she was crazy. The victim was crazy because she was so hysterical about everything the abuser was doing. Meantime, he's just as calm as he can be. And so she's looking crazy. She's even driving away her own attorney. Yeah, I mean, this opens up a really important, I think this might be the place to end this conversation for today. I mean, we could go on for a long time opening all this up. But I could talk forever. I'm sorry about that. No, no, that's great. I mean, that's why I invited you to come on is I know you have a powerful voice to share about this. But can we speak to that dynamic where the male looks like the high-functioning one because he's got the calm, rational disposition and she's got the crazy or irrational um, emotional response? Tell us a little bit about that. What's going on there? He ha- Nobody believes her from the start, right? Because she doesn't have the bruises and everything to show for the most part. Right. Um, also, if somebody has wealth, they're not going to live right up on next to somebody else in a crowded apartment complex right? where other people can hear what's going on. If you build a house in Weddington, for instance, don't you have to have an acre? Who's going to hear what's going on an acre away? Right. So there's that uh, that's going on. Um, and then also, if he if she is a stay-at-home mom, he has told her, you leave me, I'm getting the kids. And so very often she's going to stay because of her children. And a lot of people don't know that there's no way that an abuser can be a good dad. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's so many other underlying issues, right, that are at present. Right. And I think that yeah. this... if. I work with a lot of the folks that come through my practice are mass affluent, highly educated folks, good in high income earners, dash wealthy. Yeah. A lot of the conventional husbands working and wives staying at home. And I'm not saying that all of those are domestic violence situations, but they can really start flirting into that without them even realizing the men, especially not recognizing how much power they have just in their income and what they say. So that's, If you would look at that um, post-separation abuse wheel, I think that's going to be eye-opening for you, and I would recommend that your audience look at that too. Just Google it. I will. 
But is there any kind of parting words of wisdom or guidance you would offer couples as they're, some may be shaking their boots. Some may be like, wow, thank God. I don't think that's us. But some may be on that edge of saying, you know, this has really opened something I need to figure out. Yeah. Thank you so much for recognizing we're not out to get you. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, We're not out to get you. And your relationship may not survive your becoming a non-abuser. But if you've got children, your children may survive you being a changed person. (sighs) So do it for the kids. Do it for future relationships. And the the crap we throw at them works in all relationships. So if you don't if you don't want to keep being a jerk to the grocery store clerk, <laughs> you know, right. there's good yummy feelings from being nice to people. I, I think that's a beautiful way to end this. There's good yummy feelings to being nice with people, and that is a wonderful way to end. Is this is a heavy topic and. It is. And there is support for you if you're in that place where you you don't know where else to go. B is a wonderful resource to reach out to. She loves, is it fair to say, loves working with these guys? I do. I, I would much rather work with my men, with my abusers. I don't know why. I'm just weird. Um, but, but I would much rather work with them than any other population. Well, we all have our special gifting, and this is clearly yours. B, thank you so much for your time. And uh, there will be uh, links to your websites and services in the show notes. So if anybody can't Google it right now, just know it's there in the show notes, and you'll be able to get connected. Yeah, I'm fine. Right, thanks, B. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. I invite you now to stop for five or 10 minutes and reflect on what you just heard. Maybe even journal about it. Give yourself the time to consider what you just heard and what it means to you. By giving yourself the time to reflect and integrate what you just heard, it will help you along your journey of learning, healing, and growing towards financial intimacy in your life. Please like and follow this podcast and share with someone that would benefit from being on the journey of financial intimacy. Wishing you healthy love and money, Ed. Ed.